Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to the Liberty Cafe. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you with us as we look at oppression and the history of oppression, oppression that's going on in the country today, and how we can walk out of this oppression that we see, frankly, in our own hearts as we would turn away from Christ, but also around us in the world and the government today and into liberty. And of course, first of all, that liberty comes from Jesus Christ, but the world that God has created, the world that Christ has created, should also reflect the liberty that he has given to us, his children. So that's what we're here to talk about every week on the Liberty Cafe. But we wouldn't be here talking about it to you without the the great sponsorship and support of the folks at Texas Scorecard. Great group of folks over there fighting for liberty, fighting against oppression at a, on a daily basis at the local and state and even the federal issue, uh, bringing to Texans particularly an, an opportunity to see with your own eyes, our own eyes, what is going on in the world around us and how we can better move towards liberty. So thank you to Texas Scorecard. Be sure and stop by texasscorecard.com and see all the great work that they are doing. All right, so today is episode 56 of the Liberty Cafe. Again, really glad that you're here with me, whether it's the first episode or the 56th episode that you've uh, listened into. And we're going to talk today about corruption, which goes sort of hand in hand with oppression. And we're going to do a three-part series on this, uh, looking at corruption, well, starting from a theological and, and historical standpoint a little bit, and going to move right up into corruption in Texas government. And so the, the, the first of these three episodes I've uh, entitled Corruption in Government from Augustine to Dade Phelan. So if you're a little curious about how we get from this great Christian theologian and philosopher, Augustine, who uh, lived about 400 AD in that area back there, all the way to Dade Phelan, the current Speaker of the Texas House, and what's that, about 1,600 years or so. Well, just hang on with me. I think we're going to cover that period pretty quickly and get to it and make that connection. So let me just start with, with Augustine. So Augustine, for much of his life, was rebellion against, in rebellion against Jesus Christ. He had been brought up Christian but had rejected God and rejected Christ and was walking on his own. But by the grace of God and by the reading of his word, Augustine came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior and became a great leading figure in the Christian church. Matter of fact, he's, he's one of the you know, probably handful, you know, top five theologians you would find in Christian history. You might start with Paul, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, John Calvin would be another one of those. Uh, Martin Luther in there somewhere. So great Christian theologian and philosopher for all that. One of his great contributions came from this book called The City of God, right, where he was responding to the pagans in Rome who were saying, Rome wouldn't have fallen, we wouldn't have been overrun by the barbarians if it weren't for this Christian religion. And so... Augustine went to great 
ends to show these pagans that, in fact, Rome had been having problems for 800 years or so to that point. It wasn't about Christianity. But even more important was his contribution where he broke down the world into two places, right? You had the city of God, which was those people who occupied by those people who loved God, who had been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and those people who hadn't. Very simple. And in the city of God, there was this this beauty, there was this truth, there was this glory, now somewhat marred by still at this point in time, in his day and our day, by the remaining sinfulness in all Christians. But nonetheless, this is a place of beauty and glory and truth because it's a place where God is. And on the other hand, there's a city of man which is full of corruption because Augustine fully comprehended and understood the concept of original sin and saw its harmful effects in the world. And he saw this competition going on throughout history between the city of God and the city of man, the, the, the beauty and the truth of the city of God with, against the corruption of the city of man. And for our purposes today, one of the places that that showed up most clearly was in his views of government. Uh, Augustine clearly saw government as a place where corruption could really take hold because uh, for from his perspective, and uh, he's absolutely right, there's this concentration of power in civil government. And there's lots of different kinds of governments. There's family government, individual government, church government, and civil government. But for these purposes, we're talking about civil government when I use that term government. And civil government carries a sword, right? Given the leaders of civil government are given this iron sword to largely protect the people of God from evil. Unfortunately, too often the people in civil government are not children of God and don't love him, or they're children of God and do love him, but suffer corruption themselves. And either way, you give people who are struggling with corruption and you give them a sword, good things are not likely to happen as you go through this process. And as we look back through history and see what government looks like today, it's pretty easy to understand. And so he was very skeptical of government. He was the first proponent, if you will, from a Christian perspective of putting limits and restrictions on government power, trying to keep that power from congealing, if you will, in one place. And so he he started this trend throughout Christian theology and Christian study and Christian thought of limited government. Now, that didn't always hold sway. Uh, some the, the Roman Catholic Church, particularly in their struggles with the Pope, often thought that all power resided in the church, which meant it all resided in the Pope, and that even the Pope and the church had authority over government. And Talk about a recipe for corruption, and we saw how that worked out a lot in the Middle Ages. But still, when you when you get to the, the beginnings of the church split, uh, the Reformation, you, you see a lot of 
Christians, Reformed Christians, the beginnings of evangelicalism, those types of things, carrying on this Augustinian tradition. Um, Luther was the first of those, and Luther came had a similar concept to Augustine with um, – with, he had two cities, basically, uh, two kingdoms, uh, two kingdoms instead of two cities, but he still saw it very similarly as uh, did uh, Augustine. And then we get into Calvin, and with Luther and then Calvin, we, we both begin to see this development of what we call today Protestant resistance theory, where the government had to – the people, Christians, had to deal with how to understand – what to do when they're dealing with tyrants. When tyrants, leaders in government, didn't do what God told them to do, didn't act like God told them to act, they, they harmed their people instead of helped their people, they were a terror to good instead of a terror to bad and evil, these are all things that come out of Romans 13, then how are Protestants supposed to, how are Christians supposed to respond to that? It's not a, just a complete total obedience. Some Christians even today will look at Romans 13 and say, basically, we have to do whatever the government tells us to do unless it, we're forced to do something that is sinful against God. But Luther, Calvin, and many who came after him, Samuel Rutherford in England, a lot of others, started seeing that there, there are rights and duties of Christians to stand up against tyranny even when it doesn't involve you sinning, them forcing you to sin. Right. And, and that particularly uh, showed up in this concept of lesser magistrates. So there was a debate among Protestants about whether or not we should have people could disobey kings or if it was up to the magistrates who were above the people but below the kings, so that would be a lesser magistrate. So today, a lesser magistrate, depending on where you are, it might be the governor of Texas compared to the president of the United States or compared to Congress or something like that. If you come down a little bit lower in Texas, the lesser magistrate might be a mayor, might be a city councilman, might be a sheriff, a police officer, a member of the legislature, some kind of person with authority granted by God through however they got their office today. Usually that's elected. And they have a right to protect the people below them from tyranny above them. And so that's the concept of the lesser magistrates. And that comes all the way down through uh, history. And then it really gets into John Locke uh, when he became the great philosopher that was behind part of the American War for Independence. Now, Locke started out as a Puritan, but he became apostate probably at some point in time, uh, probably in the neighborhood of deism, so rejected Christ as part of the, the Trinitarian God. And he secularized a lot of this theory that had gone on. And so Locke had a strong influence on what came into the American scheme of government that was put into place by our forefathers first in 1776 and then ultimately in the Constitution, which was adopted in, I believe, 1789. So he had that. But the, the Puritan influence, the more Reformed theological influence through 
Luther and, and Calvin still came in really through the Puritans up in New England. So between the two of those influences came in, both the Christian and the Deist and the Unitarians. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, was probably a Unitarian. Again, rejected the, the deity of Christ, but still believed that God came down and influenced what was going on in the world. But whatever the perspective was, they all saw the corruption of mankind. They might, some of the unbelievers might not have had this concept of original sin, but they saw clearly somehow that there was this corruption. And so they really fought hard when they designed the American government. Some of them did. Some of them just wanted big government, and like uh, uh, Madison. Right? Some of them just wanted big national government. But there was enough people in the founding of this country that they believed in this separation of powers, this different levels of government, in order to take away some of the temptations of concentrated power, like we hear from Lord Acton. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That They understood that. And so we had the two major features of our American government to, to bring that into play were uh, federalism, where you had the, the national government, the federal government at the top, and the state government at the bottom. And if you recall, in the Constitution, we had the Tenth Amendment, which basically says that those powers not given to the federal government or prohibited to the state government are reserved for the states or for the people. That's the concept of federalism. So the federal government, the state government, the federal government, the national government doesn't get to do everything. Well, as we know, that's kind of gone by the wayside in, in significant ways today, and we'll talk about that at another time. But so that beginning effort to keep corruption from coming in is kind of fading away with within the national structure. And then also we have this separation of powers, which is, you know, we have the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. Those also were designed to separate the concentration of power. And again, we see that having real problems today where uh, the, the the executive is also has legislative power today, and the legislative is trying to to get executive power, and the courts are basically just trying to telling the other two branches what they can and cannot do. All that is falling apart today. Well, again, we're not going to dive into all that right now, but I do want us to come and apply this to Texas government at this point in time. And think about a little bit about what's going on. We're mostly going to do this in the, in the upcoming episodes, the next two episodes. But I, I just want us to, to see how this concept of corruption in government is plays out in, in Texas government today. And over the next the course of the next two um, episodes, we're, we're going to take a look at the, the history a little bit of, of some scores of individual members. Uh, their scores on the Texans for Fiscal Responsibility uh, Fiscal Index. Right? You know, uh, Michael Sullivan and his group here have been working on this issue for a long time and uh, started back in 2007 scoring these folks. Actually, when I was um, still working with 
Mr. Sullivan, over at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in 2005, I did my own uh, what I called Economic Freedom Index of the Texas House of Representatives. You couldn't really get a good score very Back then, it was very difficult to get a good score of the Texas Senate because everything was 31 to nothing and 29 to 2. And sometimes you'd get a good vote where you'd split it, but it'd be right down party lines, Democrats and Republicans, because they worked really hard not to make people take hard votes. But I did an economic freedom index of the Texas House. So I'm going to bring that a little bit into play here. And we're, we're going to look at a couple of different groups. We're going to look at, you know, we've got this exodus of I can't remember, 15, 20 members maybe leaving the Texas legislature right now announced so far. And we're going to take a look at some of their scores and, and see what they, how they started and then how they ended and whether there was this trend of corruption creeping into their voting record over time. So we're going to look at that uh, next week. We're also going to look at the overall score of the Texas legislature – the Texas House, the Texas Senate, and and see how that's gone. We're going to look how the Freedom Caucus has done over its three sessions. Is it still as a stronghold of freedom as it was when it got started? Those kinds of things. But for today, I just want to kind of take a note that in Dade Phelan's House of Representatives, so Dade Phelan, first term as Speaker of the Texas House, replaced the uh, the discredited and the um, well, I don't know how you want to how you want to put it. Corrupt uh, Dennis Bonin, who lied publicly about what was going on in some meetings that he had, those kind of things. And then, of course, he replaced Joe Strauss. And the one thing that Joe Strauss and Dennis Bonin and Dade Phelan have in common, particularly uh, Joe Strauss and Dade Phelan is that they were elected by Democrats. Bonin, you, you might argue that he actually got elected by Republicans, but but it, it was, you know, but with those other two, clearly, they went out and got Democratic votes, and then they paired it with some, some liberal, moderate, mainstream Republicans, and that's what put them over the top. And all the other Republicans, once they saw they were lost, then they just saw they had to go with it. Otherwise, they were going to be out of the whole thing. So you have this corruption going already where people who call themselves Republicans get elected and then are beholden to Democrats. So conservatives, pretending they're conservatives, they're liberals. And that's and so that's a corruption right then and there. And, and of course, it shows up in the index scores. And this is the only one we're going to talk about today. But the, under Dade Phelan's Texas House of Representatives, they had an overall score on the fiscal responsibility index, again, from the good folks over at Texans for Fiscal Responsibility of 38 percent. That means, you know, so that's like you take a test. What's a failing grade on a test? Well, depending on, you know, 60 to 69, somewhere in there is failing grade. 70 is your passing grade. These guys... Got a 38. That's a 38 percent on the voting record that in a House of Representatives ostensibly run by Republicans. If that's not an indication of corruption over time, I don't know what is. And that's a historic low. And during the history of the whole index, neither the Senate nor the House has ever scored anywhere near that low. So 
and I think we can also look at the the kind of corruption over time in the Texas legislature by looking at the percentage of freshman House members and freshman Senate members. And you, you go back, uh, this goes all the way back to the very first uh, Texas legislature, which I guess would have been in uh, 1847. I think we became a state in 1846. So whenever that came up, and you can see the Typically, you would see freshmen somewhere in the neighborhood, and it, it get, again, it depends, but if we're just looking at the house, probably a neighborhood of 60 to 70 percent each year were freshmen. Now, so, some of that was associated with the um, Reconstruction, where you know, the, the National Republicans came and basically wiped everybody out, and you know, if you're a Democrat, you couldn't run. And so you had to be a freshman more or less uh, in one year or a couple of years. But nonetheless, usually in a neighborhood of 60 to 70 percent. And then about 1901, that started dropping off. And today, the percent of freshmen in each class is usually below 20 percent. Why is that? Well, because I would suggest that the corruption of the legislature keeps those who um, go along – with power and know how to use power in office, and it's really hard for new faces to break in. So that's what I think the big overall picture of corruption looks like. It's not some sort of illegal activity. I mean, you see some people who, like in Sharpstown back in the 70s and things like that, who break the law because they're selling favors and things like that. But generally, I think what we see in the corruption of government today and in the Texas legislature is people who are just around and they're here to use and exercise power and to benefit their friends and, and, and in such a way that is perfectly legal, but it violates every precept of liberty and biblical guidance that we would hope for and free markets that we would hope for as Christians and conservatives. So that's what we're going to talk about over the next two weeks on the Liberty Cafe. And thank you for being with us today. Again, I want to thank you for the great folks at Texas Scorecard. Go over and see what work they are doing and how you can help them do their work at texasscorecard.com. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen.